Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm at Maeve Conran with KGNU. Delighted, as always, to be with my co-host, Arsen Kashkashian. Once again, we're live at the Boulder Bookstore with real-life people joining us and a real-life author who is Boulder-based, and we love having Colorado authors join us. So, Arsen, who have we been reading for the month of October? We've been reading Virtue by Hermione Hermione Hobie, and um, it's, been a, it's a great book. I think we're having a wonderful discussion about it. It's great to have you with us, Hermione. It is a great book. Virtue is the title, and it's a subject that's explored in many different ways in the context of, I suppose, modern-day communication, how people either are or are not virtuous and how they maybe signal their uh, virtue online. Social media is a big part of it, but I'd like to talk about the time frame. This is set sort of in the aftermath of the 2016 election, and we all know what happened. But it's also a reflection by the protagonist who's 11 years in the future, so 11 years past 2016. Why did you want to put 11 years as the distance? Because so many people are saying, we're living through history right now. What will history books say? 11 years is still kind of recent. Yeah, it is. Um, first, thank you so much for having me. It's, <laughs> it's so fun to be here at my beloved local bookstore and it's fun to be, you know, IRL. Um, so I, in a way, the, you know, it's interesting that you, you say living through history because in a way, I think that was part of the decision to have it um, narrated from the future. Um, I think it's probably like, um, <laughs> a bit distasteful to sort of psychoanalyze oneself. Nonetheless, I think this wish to, I, I had a wish, you know, living through those years, which I think we all found so punishing and are probably still trying to recover from, a wish to conceive of them as history, as the past. And so there was that going on, <laughs> but then there was, there was a sort of more prosaic craft reason to have it narrated um, from the future or rather from Luca, the narrator's present, which was then, it, it sort of seemed like um, I could, um, you know, have my cake and eat it too, in that there could be a double consciousness to the narration. So in one sense, he is, however old he is, 34, um, you know, a full-grown man with kids reflecting on this time, this important year of his youth. Um, and then in another sense, he, he is that kid, that 22-year-old boy being overwhelmed and clueless and naive and impressionable. So even though it's a, um, you know, a first-person uh, narrative, this seemed a way almost to sort of steal some of the plasticity of third-person as in there could be a sort of authorial voice, which was, you know, the lucre of the present, the present being whenever it is, 2028, 20, I think, you know, our future, his present, um, but also this, you know, yeah, this, this young and very overwhelmed man. And he's overwhelmed, obviously, by the political situation, but he's also, he's living in New York, and so much of this is just about the energy, I think, of being a young person in New York. Right. We'll talk more about that. I know you lived in New York. and I did, he, he yeah. He came from Colorado, <laughs> and he originated as Luke from Broomfield, Colorado. And Shout out Broomfield, yeah. Broomfield. <laughs> kind of harsh on Broomfield, but... Oh, no, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> as Luca from Colorado in New York. And, and why, why did you want to have 
New York as, as a focal point? Because there was so much going on in 2016. I think any major city could have sort of played host to the sure, story. Sure, yeah. I, I didn't really intend to write a New York novel. <laughs> um, my first novel is, I think, pretty, you know, um, uncontroversially a New York novel. Um, I suppose... Um, so th the couple that he um, becomes infatuated with are, I think, a, a pretty New York couple in that there is something about, the, some, there's stuff going on in terms of their kind of cultural cachet, but also their wealth and the way in which these two um, are imbricated <laughs> in uneasy ways. Um, and I think... I mean, you know, this this is probably true of most major cities in America now, unfortunately. But I think New York is a place where the um, socioeconomic divides and disparities are, are felt extremely harshly. Um, I was there in July and felt it extremely harshly. Um, you know, you have extreme wealth and extreme poverty, you know, overlapped. Um, so perhaps that's why New York, um, you know, be became the place where they live. Well, when he's in New York, he's, um, he's working as an intern for a literary magazine, The New Old World, I believe. And um, why did you set it there? And what are you able to do with kind of contrasting, as Maeve said earlier, this virtue signaling and the places that kind of this old media has in that role, too? And, what does he find himself involved in in that magazine? Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. First, I wanted him to be an intern because it seems there is something... Um, I'm just interested in what an intern is in terms of an intern at a fancy magazine. It is, you know, in, in some ways, it's kind of sold as this prestigious thing and you have to kind of fight people off to get to it. And, you know, Lucas with these kids from Harvard and whatever other fancy schools... And then you get there and you're, you know, you're making coffee and like your whatever, your English major is, you know, put to use photocopying. And that seemed to me sort of funny and painful and to be saying something about <laughs> America. Um, and then I suppose it, to, to set it at a magazine like that um, or to have him be an intern at such a magazine, I suppose it appealed to me because... Um, well, to, to put it in kind of simplistic terms, the 2016 election was, you know, a wake-up call, and um, it was and continues to be uh, a kind of catalyst for these, for all institutions, I think, to be, you know, considering their political duties and their legacies. Um, and, and, and so what's going on at that magazine is a kind of, um, an, an uneasy change. Um, so it's edited by this very old guy who's been there forever and who's kind of struggling with this rapidly changing um, political, cultural landscape. Um, and I think Luca, too, is, um, you know, d discomforted and confused by it and very much wants to be, you know, doing and saying the right things. Um, but feels himself to be far less worldly and sophisticated and opinionated than, than everyone surrounding him. Well, it's interesting when I, when I was re reading it, and one of the things I thought when you say far less worldly is 
it seems he knows he's far less worldly, but the magazine, the people in the magazine are also very insular and they think they're worldly. And it reads as a satire, it reads, you know, I read it as, as humor, like, so when the election happens, they have this emergency meeting at the ma magazine. <laughs> yeah. And can you, can you describe that scene and talk yeah, about what happens there? Sure. When I was just back in New York, an acquaintance came up to me and in a friendly, but, you know, it was an entirely friendly way, said, so is that scene based on the meetings I held? <laughs> <laughs> and I had to be like, in a way, yes. But I, I'm very glad you say it's funny. Thank you. I wanted it to be funny. I think it's a pretty, in many ways, a, a sort of disquieting novel. So it was so important to me that there be humor as well. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, the, these people at the magazine, uh, as you say, they're, they're sort of wealthy, but they're also clueless. And they're, they, they're suddenly trying to be, you know, political organizers. And they just don't know how to do it and they all want to feel better um, and these meetings sort of produce nothing but perhaps a little self-congratulation among the attendees and I don't want to sound I, I don't want to sound cynical about these efforts um, you know there are good-hearted efforts um, but I think the one of the effects of you know the previous administration was well, it was a sort of a reckoning with reality, and I think people had to realize like what they could do and what and what they couldn't do, and you know what what they were called upon um, to do in terms of you know a kind of political contribution, and that's one of the questions of the book. Uh, you know, what is the point of art at times of dire political crisis? Well, one of the other interns there, Zara, she's the only black intern. I think she's the only black person of the entire publication. Yeah, it is a small publication, but yes, she is. I'm not, I'm not defending it. But she's actually an organizer and she plays a crucial role in the organizing that happens. And yet she's not embracing I mean, people just look at her like, you want us to do what? You know, she speaks out in, in meetings and, you know, brings this idea. It's like, what are we doing here? You know, to the forefront. But then some of the other interns, their participation in what's happening is this virtue signaling that I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. on Instagram. I'll, you know, raise my fist and have that mm -hmm. uh, that picture posted or we'll we'll go for March on Sunday. Then we'll pop in and have brunch or have a coffee. It's, it's you know, it's, it's almost part of my social life. And so there's mm -hmm. that real juxtaposition between people who have the lived experience of oppression actually out doing stuff and then other people who were dipping into it almost trying it on as as an identity sure yeah i mean zara certainly has experienced um oppression but she's also highly privileged i didn't want it to be oversimplistic you know she's gone to brown she comes from a loving middle-class family um and uh yeah in some way i mean she's she's sort of um, more of an organizer than the others, but she's still, um, I, I, it was just so important to me that she not be, you know, blameless or, or some kind of paragon of, well, virtue. <laughs> um, so she has, um, you know, there's like a little moment, I mean, it, it's minor, but, but she kind of, um, rails against the sort of beauty industrial complex and heteronormativity uh, in terms of getting a mani-pedi 
And then later Luca notes that she's got, you know, a lovely pedicure. And, you know, who cares? Like, um, But I guess the point is that we are all, well, almost all of us, I think, um, have these little hypocrisies and, and contradictions within us. So my... It was so important to me that every single character dodge caricature, dodge stereotype. Um, so Byron, the editor of this old magazine, you know, he's a kind of old, uh, pompous, boozy, blowhard. And, uh, but, I, but I wanted to slightly complicate that and make him, you know, kind of a good guy too. And to make him listen to Zara, even if he can't quite fully hear her. Um, so I, I think that was one of the, you know, the guiding principles to just try and keep dodging anything that, that could be stereotype. And I, I don't know if I've succeeded, but anyway, that, <laughs> that was the intention. Well, I think we'll have Hermione read yeah, and from just, Virtue. Yeah. We haven't really got, we'll talk about these characters, but in a minute, but this is a scene when he's been spending the summer with Paula and Jason. I took very few pictures that summer. In fact, after a day or so, I switched my phone off and stashed it in the bottom of my ugly gym bag, resolving not to check my Facebook, Instagram, or anything else. I had already set up an away message on my email, a ridiculous vanity, since such a measure assumed the existence of people who might actually need to contact me regarding professional matters. I'd given my mom the landline at the house, figuring that if there was some kind of crisis, I could be reached. Forgetting was blissful. No more gut-clutching New York Times push notifications. No more being broken by the breaking news and the breaking nation. Deep in the slow and honeyed flow of midsummer, I shrank my world into the universe of Jason and Paula. And in shrinking, the world seemed to grow immeasurably. Each morning was born wide and blue. You wanted to inhale it by the lungful. The boats and the houses and the village itself, with its white clapboard general store, all of it felt scaled down, all the more charming for being small, modest, gently weather-beaten. It was like how stuffed animals looked more lovable when they got all worn and fuzzed with the signs of love. I had this image of us all, Paula and Jason and the five kids and me, as brightly colored figurines in a mossy model of our landscape. I didn't believe in God, of course, but in those months, I felt a kind of benevolence so acute that sometimes want, I wanted to cry. It felt like all the days came with fat, with apples in their mouths. It felt like everything was made of poetry. It began to seem as though there was one intelligible world you could take refuge in, and that was the world of your family, your home, your tribe, the small world. And then there was the other one, the big and ugly and untenable world of systems and suffering and the dread contractions of a nation poisoned by its own myths and lies and now officially tyrannized by one untrammeled super id. The small world was, for almost everyone, so much bigger than the big world. That was only human, wasn't it? Those weeks with Paula and Jason were the happiest time of my whole life. This is a weird thing to remember now in 2028. I'd like to sever this summer in my memory and keep it distinct and discreet, protected from the way things ended. I can't do that, of course. And so this part, the happy part, 
flows into the next part and they become stained by one another. That's author Hermione Hobie reading from her latest novel, Virtue. And that was in the voice of Luca, who's the protagonist. Yes. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's talking about this summer he spends with this couple that he referred to them earlier, a real New York couple. Paul yeah. an artist. Jason's a documentary maker. He hasn't made a documentary in a long time, but that's who he is. And they're in Maine for the summer with other similar families who use summer as a verb. <laughs> yes. So they're summering in Maine. Yes. And, there's this sense of just completely detachment. He talked there about, we're switching off phones, I'm not checking email. They, they want to be completely detached. And of course, they can do that because of the, the privilege that's afforded to them. They exactly. And spend the summer in Maine. But then reality does poke through. Um, Charlottesville, they, yeah. I think they turn on their phones or somebody yeah. finds out what's happening in Charlottesville and kind of blows things apart. Right. Um, it, wh why did you want to have that scenario where you could have these people who were living through this most tumultuous time but could completely detach themselves from it? Yeah, I wanted to make the question of pleasure complicated. <laughs> um, so... Uh, you know, I wanted the novel to be pleasurable to read, and I th I hope that um, the main, uh, with an E, <laughs> um, section uh, is full of pleasure, in that we are experiencing Luca's pleasure, and, you know, this is a place of plenty. Um, uh, there's all these kids running around, these happy kids having this blissful childhood with uh, sailboats, and there are picnics, and so much food, and so much booze. Um, and then, of course, we're, we're reminded that, yeah, this is happening while America's falling apart and, you know, there are kids in cages and, and all the rest. Um, and I, I guess this, you know, in the, in the bit I just read, this question of the small world and the big world was preoccupying me. Um, and this question of how we all uh, were surviving <laughs> that time and are still surviving. Um, and I think, you know, Zara has made this choice to um, become committed politically, and that means foregoing a lot of happiness and pleasure and contentment. Um, and in a way that is virtuous, it is certainly admirable, but it also means sort of removing herself from these bonds, from, from the small world of love and close relations, and becoming, you know, sort of monomaniacal. And then perhaps um, Paula, who is this um, artist, mother of three, has gone in the opposite direction. She's like, well, I know I'm not an organizer. I'm a mom and I'm an artist and I'm gonna do what I do and I'm not gonna feel guilty or ashamed about pleasure. I'm not endorsing <laughs> either of these. And I don't know, I think it, you know, we all have had to find this balance of um, surviving and hopefully not just surviving but finding joy and pleasure as well um, but not sort of <laughs> falling into decadence or self-indulgence or a blinkered um, you know head in the sand uh, way of being. Yeah it seems like Luca in many ways is caught between these two very strong women right he he's kind of a guy who's not very strong he's floating he doesn't know what he wants he doesn't know what his life is going to hold and he on one point he's he's got zara who is a peer and somebody he's attracted to and she feels very strongly but he's got paula and paula who is as old as his mother so even though she's a mother with a young child she really is in her late 40s turns 50 i think during the book mm -hmm. 
And he, he describes when he sees her again, so he meets her at this meeting, but then he just runs into her on the street with her child. And he describes it as being like a needle entering the vein. He describes the pleasure of seeing her as if it was a shot of heroin. <laughs> and he's, he's much more drawn to Paula. And so as the book goes on, right, right where you read is kind of a turning point to some extent where he, you start feeling regretful. Did I make the wrong choice? Should I have been in Maine? But as a reader, I kind of felt all along like he didn't have as big of a choice as he's pretending he had in 2028. And so I thought that was able to complicate it. He, I, not one of, he's not quite an unreliable narrator, but there's certainly, you, you see it was more prescribed for him the way he would go, I think, earlier on. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's just gratifying to hear that. That, that seems <laughs> such an astute reading. And I think you're absolutely right that when we look back on our lives, um, we can apply a sort of determinism to them. Um, and, you know, this sense of had I done that, everything would have been different. And, yeah, I don't know how true that is. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's not exactly a choice. It's like he doesn't, um, you know, renounce Zara and proclaim that he is choosing Paula. But you're absolutely right that he is torn between these two women and, and what they represent. And, again, I didn't want to make that overly stark, you know, Paula is certainly appalled by what's happening. Um, she's not an entirely frivolous person. Um, and likewise, you know, Zara isn't immune to the, the charms of art. Um, but I, I, yeah, certainly it's these two women and, and the hold they have on him. And I think that's where the, the sort of uh, tussle comes in. What do you think when you're writing or in your mind, that this, the, the hold that Paula has on him is so extreme, like that heroin analogy that you wrote. And, and you see that later on, that he is just completely obsessed with her, where I think, you know, probably the other interns would be like, well, how can you not be obsessed with Zara? She's, she's young, she's vibrant, she's, you know, this other woman is, you know, 25, 26 years older than you, and, and she's married, and, and he's also kind of obsessed with a husband too, but we can get into that later. There's so, a lot going on. <laughs> but there was something magical for him about Paula beyond the other relationships, it seemed like. Absolutely. I think it is, um, she's doubtless. Um, she uh, has never questioned her right to pleasure. Um, I mean, I say she's doubtless. There is a point where she, she doubts her talents. Um, but I just had this sense of her as a person who takes up a lot of space, you know, when, when he meets her, she is kind of, um, you know, she's like tending to her toddler on the street. So, no, it's not exactly, you know, she's not in a moment of sort of poise. But I did want a sense of like her muchness, you know, there's like stuff falling out of her bag. And, and like, of course, someone comes to her aid because that's just who she is. But I just had a sense of uh, both her and Jason's, but particularly her potent sexual charisma, which I think comes from, um, you know, th this lack of doubt, you know. Zara is all about questioning, questioning herself and questioning whether she's doing enough and kind of, you know, she has an analytical mind that is interrogating the magazine as well as what's going on politically. 
And, you know, Paula is an artist. She's driven by instinct and desire. And that's really sexy, even if it's, you know, possibly morally less admirable. <laughs> well, Paula as an artist, you know, ties into this theme of what does art and culture, what's its responsibility, what's its role when we are living through, you know, political turbulent times. And I know this is something that artists and writers and poets, musicians, you know, tackle. How Paula ultimately produces a, a big body of work is, is then deemed to be, I think, too frivolous, really. And she's sort of criticized for not responding in, in an appropriate way. So, I mean, having written this, being a writer yourself, and having lived in a city like New York that really is, you know, a, a, so full of all different types of art and culture, I mean, what is your sense on art and culture and its either role or responsibility to reflect what's happening politically? Ooh. Big question, maybe. <laughs> let me let me try and warm up. I uh, it's not that I believe in art. I believe in good art. <laughs> I don't believe blindly in the power of art. Um, nor do I believe that. Uh, I mean, let's just narrow it down to literature. That that literature has an obligation to be um, explicitly political in a salutary way. I don't think. Um, I think what gives literature a moral power is that it is not about content. And this is something uh, I find very troubling about our moment in that there seems to be a confusion um, whereby what is depicted is taken as an endorsement. Um, and to me, the, the moral force of fiction is that it is an amoral space, and it's um, a morally complicated space. It is not instructive or didactic. It is not telling you how to live. It is showing different ways of being, and this is what thrills me about reading novels and about trying to write novels, that you can achieve something much richer emotionally and intellectually through the mechanism of character. So through many characters, interacting with each other and with the world, something, a, a kind of web of meaning can be built that I find more truthful, um, more illuminating and salutary than, um, than anything that is, you know, sort of um, uh, monovalent, <laughs> to use an awkward term. So for me, you know, the point of art in times of political crisis is to remind us why we want to stay alive. Um, I don't think um, we want to, you know, the point is not not being bombed. The point is not being bombed so that we can delight in novels, etc. There is a line um, quite early on, uh, and I'm, I'm going to butcher this extremely famous line, um, but it's a Brecht line, and it's a sort of plaintive question that goes something like, maybe someone in the audience can correct me, Will there be singing in the dark times? In the dark time, the times there will be singing about the dark times. Um, I, I feel sort of resistant to the idea of art as therapeutic. I think it's something <laughs> more serious than that. And I think quite often of Toni Morrison saying, don't settle for happiness, which I just find so beautiful and uh, liberating. You know, she's saying, we're not here to be soothed and consoled. Um, we're here to experience something deeper than 
happiness, um, which might be, you know, being disquieted, uh, having our minds changed. Um, so that that's why I read. <laughs> so, so in the novel, you know, one of the things the novel allows, and especially Luca looking back on his life, is to say all these things that he couldn't say at the time. And there was one passage where he talks about, um, he only ever uttered, I think he's talking about when he talks to Zara, because he's so intimidated by her that he can't say everything he wants to say. Mm -hmm. And he'll only utter a sliver of what he thinks, living an uncommunicated life. And I want you to comment on that, you know, because as a novel, especially a first person novel, here he's given all this chance to communicate, or as the author can, but, but at heart, that's true of all of us, right? We're all living an uncommunicated life. And yeah. What can art do in that situation? What's the novel do? And yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, literature is a sort of dream of pure communication, of honest communication. And even the best conversationalists among us, you two are doing a beautiful job. <laughs> you know, we, we can't attain um, that kind of deep honesty. And I think here it's a question of um, privacy. Um, I mean, to me, what, what makes me a sort of <laughs> novel chauvinist, much as I love and admire and consume, for want of a better word, other forms of art, is that there is something, uh, to my mind, kind of sacred about um, the way a novel works, in that, you know, I like to think there are as many versions of the novel as there are its readers, because everyone who reads it sees a character in a different way, you know, they remember a different scene to someone else, there's a, a kind of sense of like endless iteration. And there's also this way in which, you know, the, the reader and the novel are in a kind of communion. Like the, you know, reading is a, it's very engaged. Um, you can't really be a passive reader of fiction. Um, it's dependent on your own imagination and your own experiences. And in that way, it becomes so personal because you are bringing yourself um, to the book. Um, but in terms of Luca, I certainly, you know, one question I asked was like, well, why is he telling this story? And I think it's because he wants to author his life, even if it's just to himself, even if it is a kind of private authoring, because he needs to figure out what this story was, what it meant, what it means then and, and what it means now. Well, we're going to say goodbye to our radio audience right now, but encourage you to uh, listen to the podcast because we're going to have further conversation with Hermione Holby. Thank you for being with us. We're here at the Boulder Bookstore. It's so great to have you. Thank it's you. It's so great to be here. Thanks. We have been reading Hermione's novel Virtue for the month of October, but as we always do at the end of the show, we look ahead to the next month. Who are we inviting our listeners to read along with us for November? There's another Colorado author, E.J. Levy, who lives up in Fort Collins, and her book is The Cape Doctor. It takes place in 19th century Cape Town, and it's an Irish girl who adopts the identity of a boy to study medicine and embraces that identity. And it's actually based on a true story. It's a novel, but um, so she'll be interesting to talk to. Well, we look forward to that and tune in for that in November. In the meantime, please do subscribe to the podcast of the Radio Book Club. More conversation with Hermione Hobie coming up. For KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran at the Boulder Bookstore with my co-host, Arson Kashkashian. Thank you, Arson. Thank you, Maeve.